0: So today is August 8th, it's 2018. Our message is Faithful Confidence. That's because Sunday we covered faithfulness in overtime. We had an emphasis on faith that expresses itself through the decades. We were trying to talk to you about the difference between a great moment of courage in faith and a lifetime of faith. We were looking at the kind of perseverance and faith that built the ark, that builds the families of God and that restores a nation. Tuesday night, how many of you went to Matthew's house? On Tuesday night at Matthew's house, he was covering the topic of confidence. He wanted you to know that you have the ability to stand under the load that God puts on your shoulders just by trusting Him. And he called that confidence. I want to continue those themes tonight. I want to look at faithful confidence. Is that okay? All right, we're going to go to uh, Proverbs 4 and verse 23 first. Above all else, guard your heart. What do we guard? Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. That's the 2011 NIV. The 1984 says, for it's the wellspring of life. You can see there's a similar concept there. Not only does what you do flow out of your heart, but also, if your heart has a contaminant in it, your entire life is contaminated, like a well. What an important concept. One of the things that we're going to do tonight is not just look at what's flowing out of you, as the 2011 puts it, but more from the 1984's idea of also what has come into you. Because it, it affects, there's a relationship. Can you say garbage in? Garbage, in. Garbage, out. garbage out. See, if we allow certain contaminants in our life, then whatever we try to do, it's tainted by those contaminants. Isn't that true? Yeah. So many of you in this church have children right now. It's, uh, it's an incredible thing. I remember when the children's church literally fit in Judah and Gabriel's room. That is, uh, every service was complete with somebody trying to shove Cheez-Its in the VHS slot on the uh, VCR. Every service was uh, a new list of broken toys. It, it was a lot of fun, really. Um, I'm... Not being facetious about those days, it was neat when we could look out and see a handful of kids and we knew exactly what was going on in everybody's life. Now, a children's church service for us has 50 people in it. And it's also a lot of fun, but it is different. And because this church is at a time period where... How many of you have children that are under 13 years old? Yet, yeah, look, look, keep your hands up. Look around. Is that incredible? You could get the impression that we uh, were Catholic, you know. I want to use our children as a bit of a homiletic this evening. I'd like to talk to you about how you relate to your child and what you've observed. Those of you that don't have children, you won't be left out of this. Uh, What happens is you'll see it in the relationships of others. You'll see it in your nieces and in your nephews. Think about those kids for just a minute. When they're very young, when we're talking about not being quite old enough to know everything that's going on, they show remarkable bravery. You know, my, our, our toddlers are not scared when we go into Mexico and they see the cartel. They, uh, if their parents are nearby, they don't show a fear of drowning. They don't show a fear of falling. You know, you can take my little grandson Titus and throw him way up in the air. It never occurs to him what happens if he hits the ground. Because he never has. They don't worry about getting burned. They don't sit up at night thinking about if they have cancer. They're not worried that if the door didn't get locked that they're going to be robbed. They're not biting their nails when their body em, bottle empties, worried about the next economic disaster. Amazingly, though, even if there is no danger present, they burst forth into a fearful fit of tears. Even when there's no mortal danger, the moment a parent leaves the room. Is that crazy? There could be an actual serious mortal peril, but if their parent's in the room, they don't notice, they don't care, they're just happy. They could have no danger anywhere around them, a parent leaves the room, and they just lose it. You ever been with little AJ when it's time for her to go to bed? When it's time for A.J. to go to bed, this beautiful little miniature prophetess turns into a crying snot ball. Her hair's everywhere. It's crazy. There's anxiety in the heart of a child when their parents leave. As a parent, you provide your child with a sense of security. But when you are not present, your children are faced with fear and uncertainty. Am I the only one that's noticed that? Or do you find that to be true as well? I remember Judah comforting Gabriel when Gabe was really little. We were listening to him on the baby monitor. That's full-time entertainment if you don't have a baby monitor. When they don't know it's on and you get to hear what they're talking about. And Gabe says, I'm scared. And Judah says, "Ah, it's okay, little brother. Jesus will protect you. He says, I just want somebody I can see. Right? I mean... Judah gets out of his bunk bed and sits with Gabe and then they're good for the evening when he couldn't see anybody around he was scared your children probably don't go through a linear exercise they don't exercise logic to arrive at their fear when you leave the room they probably just kind of feel it in their soul fear that they're being left abandoned that they won't have what they need fear Because there's an emotional disconnect. When the parent is absent, the child sees the absence of the parent as an absence of protection, provision, and peace. It's really interesting then that our Bible, it structures itself in a way that is familial. If you ever peruse the 8th chapter of Numbers... You find out in Numbers 8.18 that every single Levite was a replacement for the firstborn sons of Israel. When Israel came out of Egypt, God said, every firstborn is mine. So what happens then is every firstborn male in Israel, every single one, belonged to God. And along the way, God strikes a bargain with his people. He says, I'm not going to take everyone. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take an a tribe in their place. I will take Levi in the place of your firstborn sons. He actually made them pay a difference, a, a cash price for the difference between the number of their physical sons and the number of Levites that there were. They had to pay a price of redemption. But the point here is when you looked at a Levite then, you didn't just see some weirdo in a clerical color. What you saw was the person who was serving God in the stead of your firstborn son. This helps us explain what Paul says to Timothy. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.2 that we're supposed to treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in absolute purity. Paul is affirming the idea that if you work for the Lord... You are working for the Lord in the place of somebody else's family member. And so for you, they are family members. Do you get that? What that means then is when somebody is encouraging you from the word of God as a priest of God, it ought to be the same as if it were your eldest son doing it. Or a father to a son. Or a son to his mother. The idea is that our relationships are not institutional in any way. Our relationships are familial in every way. This was so emphasized by Jesus that in his most famous sermon, which was the Sermon on the Mount, that's the one that most everybody can quote some part of, he references God as Father uh, 17 times in just two chapters, which is, is uh, Matthew 5 and 6, the Sermon on the Mount. That's not unique to the New Testament. It's not even unique to Matthew. Matthew references God as our Father 42 times at least. The New Testament references God as our Father 252 times. What do you think the overwhelming message is? It begins in First 1 John 1.12 when he says, As many as believed on him, he gave the right to become children of God. Our relationship to the Father is that of a father and a child. So now that so many of you have children in the room, you're going to learn so many things by the way your child acts towards you and what it means to come into the kingdom as a child. In the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to look at some highlights of for just a minute, 14 subjects are related. That's an interesting topic, isn't it? 42 times God is called Father in Matthew. 14 subjects are related in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to cover with you the first seven, and I'm going to do it through a series of slides. You'll have a scripture here and also a slide here. In the same way, this is Matthew 5.16, in the same way, this is the first time that Matthew uses the word Father as a replacement for God. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that may, they may see your good deeds. Whose good deeds? Yours. And praise your Father in heaven. One of the very first things in the first sermon that Jesus preaches is that you are a reflection of your Father. Father. Come on, do we have some parents here today that have at times been embarrassed that their children are a reflection of them? What do you say as a couple? How do you do that? Like your kid is really showing out, right? But not in the kind of way that makes you proud. And you look at your spouse and you say, you know, you need to go get your son. One of the first things that we begin to understand is that everything that we do is supposed to reflect our Father. When you do good deeds, it reflects well upon your Father. Man, that's an awful empowering thing, isn't it? Let's go to our second one. Matthew five forty four. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. That's very interesting language, isn't it? He wants you to do good to all men because you are your father's son. Who is God uh, wicked to? Never. Who is God twisted in his behavior towards? No one, ever. Have you ever looked at somebody, though, and decided you didn't like them? Yeah, of course you have. Of course you have. You may work really hard not to do that. They may remind you of a third grade teacher that you haven't forgiven yet. There could be so many things. But if we want to be like our father, if we want to be his children, then we are supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That's a profound thing, isn't it? How many of you had fathers that expected you to obey them when they spoke? The reason that the gospel takes on these terms is so that you will understand that, number one, it is familial. And number two, as much as you, who are an imperfect father, would expect absolute obedience to your word, our father expects the same. The third time, it shows up in Matthew. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. You know, this concept to be perfect, that being verb there is isome. It's Strong's number 2071. And if that doesn't impress you, have you ever wondered what a pastor does all day? Well, when we're not fixing plumbing, when we're not counseling, which is worse than fixing plumbing sometimes, we try to squeak out some time to study the word. Not having had an extensive background in Koine Greek, it took me a little while to figure this out. But in this particular sentence, this word that is root, is isome, becomes iseste. That's it, it after it's been conjugated in the sentence. It's in the future tense. It's in the middle voice. I'm hoping you're getting impressed now. It's in the indicative mood. It's addressing us in the second person. And it assumes a plural audience. Yeah, that's what I did all day today. What difference does any of that make? Why parse the Greek? Well, number one, I was sincerely hoping that you would be impressed with that. But the second reason is, this means that the way that this can be read is be perfect, can be read as you, or if you're in Texas, y'all, because you is plural, will or shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That reads a little differently, doesn't it? That reads a little bit like a promise. Gabrielle, you shall be perfect. That's good news. Sometimes when you think of your relationship with the Father, you think of all the ways you're not perfect. But the third time this shows up in Matthew, it's almost taken as not just a promise, but a prophecy. Even as your Father is perfect because you're His child... You will become perfect. Of course, the third thing that it is, if it's not just a promise, if it's not just a prophecy, is first and foremost, it is as it's translated, a command. Be perfect. In that one thing, we see a little bit of the relationship between a child and a father. The father's given a command and you are striving to get there. But it's the father who's going to help you become what he is. Come on, saints, that's good news. You have no idea how long it took me to figure that out today. But once you have something like that, it's yours. It's yours forever. He's not just telling us to aim for perfection. He's promising us that because we're his children, we will arrive at perfection if we obey his command. Isn't it just like a father to tell a son to do something he knows he can't do so that the son will need the father's help and they get to do it together? See, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're already beginning to pick up on the same kind of familial trends that Carlos has with his daughters, that Rick has with his sons, that I have with my children, and God has them with us. That's an incredible thing. I give my children tasks that I know they can't complete without my help. I enjoy the fact that they need my help to get it done. It allows for instruction. It allows for character development. And at the end of the day, I always intended to help them reach the goal for which we were aiming. That is the way that you might should view your relationship with your father. He's made you a promise. He's made you a prophecy. And he's given you a command. The fourth time that it shows up, Matthew 6.1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Think through that for a minute. Your Father cares not just about what you do, but also He cares about why you're doing it. It's important to Him what your motives are. Our topic today is confidence and faithfulness. And yet God cares very much why you are confident. He cares very much why you are faithfully consistent. The fifth time this shows up in Matthew is Matthew 6, 3 through 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. If you look at Verse 6, as well, we see a very parallel statement. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In both of these statements about the Father, you're finding out that He is promising to reward every action that was righteous and that carried a righteous motivation. He doesn't miss anything. Even though you don't see him, he sees you. Now that's that's an important little piece of information there. There was a time that I stole my father's car. Actually, there was more times than one that I stole my father's car. And the one that I'm going to tell you about is I happened to be coming in at 2 in the morning in a car I was not supposed to be driving So slick as I was, I turned off the ignition in neutral and I let it coast with the headlights off into the driveway so as to be unseen. The problem is from the second story of the home, my father was very much watching me. I just couldn't see him. Which brought us to a sudden day of judgment and accountability. It felt great. I was getting away with it. I had done what I wanted to do. It had gone undetected. I made it all the way into the house, all the way into my bedroom until my father's hand wakened me from my sleep. Friends, our motives and our actions are seen by the father. If that's not sobering, I don't know what is sobering. Our sixth one in Matthew Matthew 6, 8, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. The them there is, as we would say in Louisiana, them people over there, the pagans. He says, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Is it comforting to you to know that your father is aware of your needs before you were aware of them? How many of you, when you are praying, become emotional and it's grieving to you because you want something or need something so badly that you slip into believing that you are convincing God of your need because he knew about your need before you knew about your need. It's an interesting concept. I don't know that I've always thought of it that way. Which takes us to the seventh one. Matthew six, verse nine. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. He's not just your Father. He's also the Father of the person sitting on your left or right. We are a community that He is the Father of. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In this passage that is so famous to everyone, we find out that our Father wants us to establish His rule on earth, and we have brothers and sisters to help us do it. If you didn't know anything else so far, what you would know is that we have a loving Father, one that is very well aware of your needs, very well aware of your deeds, very well aware of your motives, He's promising so many things to you that we forget so often. As I see it, Matthew 5 and 6 goes on to address seven more topics. I don't want to read them tonight. I want to give them to you as a summary. The next one that he addresses from a fatherly standpoint is forgiveness. He says you can't be forgiven if you don't forgive. In other words, to remain his son, you must forgive other people. Second, on the topic of repentance or fasting, he said that this is not a show. This is is something that is precious to him and it is not for the purpose of being seen or praised by men. On the topic of worry, he simply says it's inappropriate. On the topic of expectancy of good things from his hands, he encourages you that because he is good, you can expect good things from him. He moves on to say that you need to put His will before your concerns. Now, I don't know about you, but my father had no problem explaining that to me. My concerns were completely secondary to what he told me to do. The sixth one was that he has good gifts because he's a good father. The seventh is in Matthew 7, 21. And he says, not everybody... Who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter the kingdom. The necessity of obedience to enter his reign. From beginning to end, the Sermon on the Mount is familial. From beginning to end, it is teaching us that he is in the father role and we are in the children role. Would you say that that's pretty airtight, clear at this point? Now that I went through all of that, because I do want you to acknowledge and see that Jesus teaches us to relate to God as our father. That lets us go back to our example at the beginning and learn from it. As a child, we show remarkable courage when we feel like our father is with us. When your father, is, we sang about it tonight, and I didn't even know, I I didn't put that together. We say, when you walk into the room, everything changes. Don't we? Let me ask you, when did he walk out of the room? That is the perspective of a child, and they are comforted by seeing their parent. Conversely, We might begin to understand tonight, and can I tell you this is important for our congregation? That your insecurity, your fear, and your chaos are all the direct result of feeling like your father is absent in your situation. Period. it's, It's really that clear. I could stop now and let you meditate on that, but I'm not going to. The law, the prophets, and the writings assure us of something. Something that is so overwhelmingly demonstrated that it ought to wipe away our fear. It ought to wipe away our insecurity. It ought to settle the chaos in our lives. And we'll be left with only one conclusion. We very often do not believe what God has said. I want to begin with you in Deuteronomy 31 and verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never... Somebody say never. Never. Say it louder. He will never leave you nor forsake you. If that's true, then why are we asking Him to walk into the room? If that's true, why do we spend time thinking about Him not being there? If it was true in Deuteronomy, when did it change? See, He is a father, and you are a child, and He has never left you unattended. But you feel, very often, very many times, like He has not noticed your situation, like He is not present in your situation, and just like a child bursting into fearful fits of tears, Our insecurities grow. Our fear grows. Our chaos in our life grows. And it is directly attributable to not realizing He's standing next to you. He says it again in Deuteronomy 31, 8. The Lord Himself. Somebody say Himself. That's an important word. The Lord Himself goes before you and will be with you. He will... Never, what's that word? Never. Leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. That's pretty pashat, isn't it? There's no sowed bomb to drop here. The reality is that when we have fear and we have discouragement, it's because we have stopped believing that he is standing in the room with us. Because when we know that he's in the room, when you can feel that he's in the room, when you can see that he's in the room, fear goes out the door. We sang about it. So how much fear do we have that is unnecessary? How much insecurity do we have that is unnecessary? Psalm 37 says, actually, let me just read you Joshua 1.5 first. That way you get a prophet. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. How incredible is that? So I'm going to. T- When you were thinking about what Joshua has said, God repeats to him the same thing that was said in Deuteronomy. I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you think that God is capricious? Is he a liar? Is he fickle? Does he change his mind? Why does he even have to say it again if he said it in Deuteronomy? Because he knows his son. He knows that Joshua will fall on his face and act abandoned immediately after Achan takes things into his tent and Israel suffers their first loss. He knows that when you face trial and when you face tribulation, the temptation that you will feel is to believe that he's no longer with you. Do you remember what the Lord said to Joshua when he was on his face? Why are you crying out to me? Get up and search the camp. They've made themselves liable to destruction. In other words, God's a father in the room. Go. Why are you crying? This is something you're supposed to fix. There are so many things in our life we're supposed to fix. But do you know what? It's never without the presence of the Lord next to us. It's never without him holding us. Look at the way Psalm 37 and verse 28 says it. For the Lord loves the just. What does He love? For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake His faithful ones. They will be protected forever. But the offspring of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and will dwell in it forever. These promises are not even conditional. God is with his people, his children, forever. I want to talk to you about that in the terms of comforting attributes of God. Uh, He is a father. And what would you think about Rick if you found out he left his baby unattended? Keith, you're in family law. Will I get in trouble if you leave Vera in my presence... And I decide to go get drunk instead of watching Vera. Will I get in trouble? If not with the law, Keith is going to want to kill me, right? Do you really think that God is a deadbeat dad? An indigent father? Do you act like he's a deadbeat dad? Do you act like he's forgotten about you? He's inattentive to you? You know, anybody who doesn't get what they want when they want it, feels a sense of injustice. But it might be that he knows what you need before you even asked, and he's decided when he's going to fix your situation. Psalm 139 in verse 7 gives us some inescapable insight, something that you should never forget because it's fallen out of... Listen, ACDC had a more theologically accurate song than most of ours. The Highway to Hell... That is more correct biblically than most of the songs that we're hearing on the radio today. So we can sing when you walk into the room, everything changes. But after you, you read Psalm 139, tell me how it is that he walks into the room. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I were to go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light becomes night around me, even the darkness will not be dark for you. The night will shine like the day for the darkness is as light to you for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's room. Tell me where can you go and be away from God's presence? Then when have you ever been somewhere that God was not in the room? See, it's never happened. He's a good father. He's never let you out of his sight. He's never let you out of his concern. He's never let you out of his protection. He's never let you out of his provision. He's never let you be in a place where he was not aware of what you needed before you needed it. But does your life reflect that? I know mine doesn't. I know the truth is, is if people were watching my life and my actions to see what kind of father I had, many times they'd have to wonder. Because I'm often scared. I'm often insecure. I'm often frustrated. I often feel like I don't have what I'm supposed to have. In other words, I'm acting like my father's left the room while he's standing right there. I'm encouraged that no matter where I go, he is. I'm encouraged that there is nowhere in the heavens, on the earth, or even under the earth, that his presence doesn't permeate. Do you know why? Because I'm his son. And I want to be in his presence. Jeremiah twenty three twenty three has something incredibly comforting in it. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill the heaven and the earth, declares the Lord? See, he's not a local deity. He's not in only one room, and if he were in that room, then he couldn't be in the other room. He's actually in both at the very same moment because he's our father. Do you think of the Lord like a localized idol? Well, you would never admit to it. But if you think that when you show up on a certain day, he's more here than he is there, you're treating him like a localized idol. If you believe that when you're doing certain activities... He's more there than at another time. You're treating him like a localized idol. See, it is true that if you want to visit Buddha, you can only do it where his fat little statue sits. But when you want to visit with the the very presence of God, where could you go when he is not sitting? Heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool. See, it turns out that we are very much like our children. The moment that our father seems not so close, anxiety begins to overwhelm us. But in reality, he's all, he's told us even when you don't see me, I am there. He might even be listening on the children's monitor, seeing what kind of conversations we're having, seeing what's happening. Acts 17.26 is something our church has quoted for so long, and there's something so beautiful in it. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him. What's this phrase? Though he is not far from each one of us. You know, that implies that he's not even far from the wicked. He's not far from the lost. Every single nation, every person right down to the boundaries of the nation and the occupation of the people. He's close enough to each one so as to be said to not be far from any one of us. That's an incredible thing. He's never out of earshot. He's he's never, uh, he's never never inattentive, which leads me to what I would call our backyard behavior. It's, y'all are very quiet tonight. Is it because I don't have the Britney Spears microphone on? Is, is that the problem? Backyard behavior. When you're thinking of backyard behavior, raise your hands again if you have children. Now raise the other hand as well. You're close to worshiping. That's good. We're trying to get some life into you. Respirit yourself. Breathe. Okay. When, When we were children... Or when you have children old enough to do this at some point, there's going to be this miniature little bicycle that is so cool. And, uh, it's going to be about this tall and you're going to have a kid that just cannot wait to ride that thing. Yeah. You've, you've done this. And what's going to happen is the little boy will, he just cannot, or little girl can't wait to ride it until they fall on their face a few times. And then they're not sure that they want to ride it. and, Uh, Today, I guess we wrap them in mattresses and helmets and you know all kind of stuff. It used to be that you actually tore your jeans and bled a little bit. But in any case, however you do what you do, you end up as a parent with your hand under this tiny little seat in the most awkward, you know. For me, I'm fat, kind of run down the street, you know, while they're uh, while they're trying to pedal, and they're, they're they're like, I got it, I got it. They're so excited. And then they realize that you've let go of the seat and they find the nearest mailbox or trash can or whatever it is. That's backyard behavior. Same thing happens, say, in a swimming pool. You know, while you're right there with them, they're swimming and they're having a great time, you take two steps back and they realize how far you are and, oh my God, I'm drowning. It's backyard behavior. You know how much backyard behavior the average Christian has in his life? Sometimes between Wednesday and Sunday service, it's like he took his hand off of the seat or it's like he took a step back from you, though in reality, he's never taken a step back from you. It's your perception. And we act like we just have to crash. We can't do this on our own. We look for reasons to explain why the crash is not really our fault. And we say things like we're just waiting on God. What if God's waiting on you? What if he never left? He's not trying to make up his mind. He's not indecisive about what he wants done. What if he's waiting for you to take it seriously? Although he's everywhere, God gave Israel a focal point. He wanted to help them with their confidence and their faithfulness because he's a good father. In the preceding passage, when we're looking at this, it's Exodus 33, 15. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Now, is it possible that God's presence wouldn't go with him, according to Psalm 139? No, there's nowhere they could go and be outside of his presence. So what are they really asking for? They're really asking for a security blanket. They're really asking for a visual representation of god's presence they were used to following a cloud they were used to following a pillar of fire and they were worried now if we can't see you how will anybody know that you're with us how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and that you'll be uh... with me and with your people unless you go up with us what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth and the lord said to moses I will do the very thing that you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Tell me, how does God do that, though? Well, he sends an angel with them in this case so that they can see that he's with them. But was he any less with them if they couldn't see the angel? No. Later on, he builds an ark called an ark of his presence they often carry it into battle with them as a reminder that God's throne is among them. But is he any less with them if they don't have an ark? No, in fact, they lost the thing and he was still with them. Fast forward in history, and to make his children secure, to help us become confident and faithful children, the fullness of the deity walked on the earth in bodily form, in the man Jesus who is called the Christ. This gave us a focal point so that we could see God who is everywhere is in fact very much right here in the actions of this man. He became the true ark, wouldn't you say that? The ark was just a symbol. Jesus was far more than a symbol. He became the very messenger of God's presence. I'd like to show you that. Look at Matthew 28, and we're going to pick up in verse 18. Are you guys bored? Y'all doing okay? It's raining. Our Britney Spears might quit working. Sunday, we had ceiling tiles fall off, you know? This is, I think, uh, a practical message that as we get to the end of it, I'm hoping will produce in you confidence and faithfulness. Are you in Matthew 28, verse 18? Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciple of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, how does Jesus adopt the exact same speech as the father? Because the same substance that is the father is the son. He's not the father, but you watch this as we do this. He is speaking the very words that the father spoke. And you know what's interesting about that? He's not omnipresent. He's standing right there in a glorified body. And if he's standing right there, then he is not over there. It turns out that he told them in John 14 something else. This is John 14, 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father. And he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I say I. Will not leave you as orphans. I say I I. will come to you. Jesus equates himself. as completely and totally equal with the Holy Spirit. See, he adopts the words of the father and he equates himself completely with the Holy Spirit. This is. In and in a word, an expression of the Godhead, the father can say, I will be with you and send the son. And the father is with them by way of the son. Jesus can say, I will be with you forever. The father is sending the spirit and both the father and the son are with them by way of the spirit. For some, this is much of a mystery. And I get that. But this is an expression of the Godhead. And it is a way to say whether in the personage of the father. Whether in the ministry of the Son or in the power of the Spirit, I want you to know I am in the room with you. I, he, he wants you to know that he is with you. So he goes on to say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father. And you are in me. And I am in you. What does that indicate? It seems like such a riddle. He's literally saying, because you're my child, you will never be able to get away from my presence. In fact... I am going to enter you the same way the Father and the Spirit and I are completely intertwined. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not the world? Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him. And what's this word? We will come to him and make our home with him. In what way is Jesus ever inside of you or making his home with you? It's only by his spirit. Again, a statement of the Godhead. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I live with you. Leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled. And do not be afraid. Why do not be afraid? Because Jesus and the Father by way of the Spirit make their home with you. See, your children are unnerved when mom walks out of the room. They're unnerved when you walk out of the room because they feel alone. And he is saying, you are my children and I will never leave you alone. We will make our home with you. Oh, it's a powerful statement when you think about it. It's convicting to me. You know, when I look in the word, the first thing that I do is look at my own life and apply it and I realize how much of my day I act like I am not dwelling in the same home with the father. It harkens back to those teenage days when my dad was out of the house, I did what I wanted to do. When dad came home, there was a reckoning and I did what he wanted me to do. Our father is in the house. The same spirit that filled Jesus now fills us. He makes his home with you. You know why? He does not want you to be subject to fear. He does not want you to be ruled by insecurity. He does not want your life to descend into chaos. Now, I told you we would go through this in the law of the prophet. Writings. We did that in the Old Testament. You've seen it in the Newer Testament law. Here's a Newer Testament writing. And notice it comes from the book of Hebrews. Very interesting place. Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. Because God has said. Who has said? I. Who has said that? I. Of course, Jesus also said it. Think through that for a minute and there's an unavoidable conclusion. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Do you hear how he's relying upon the promise that God said and that Jesus also said? So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do with me? Why do you say it with confidence? Because he has not left you, he's with you. Do, do, do you get me? If you believe that the Lord is sitting right next to you, nay, nay, well, nay, I've been reading the King James Bible today. It's Textus Receptus, I'm sorry. If you believe Jesus is sitting inside of you this moment, what can you not do? What are you afraid of? What are you not going to have? Who who in here is bold enough to say, well, although Jesus is inside of me, I'm still really disenfranchised and disgusted about X, Y, and Z. No, you're not going to do that. So let me ask, when you've been disgusted and disenfranchised about X, Y, Z, why is it? Because you're the child throwing the tantrum in the room believing your parent has left you. And I am that child. And I don't want to be. What do we expect our children to do? Grow up, grow up into men and women. The, the Bible declares that we have to mature. We have to grow up. When a infant is left for moments, you don't let them cry. My wife has some rule about that. How many ever months they've been alive equates to a certain number of minutes that they can cry. But by the time they're 16, they cry all night. I don't care. They're going to do exactly what I said to do. What if these feelings of absence are not absence at all, but just moments where you're being allowed to grow into maturity? Come on now. That takes us to Revelation 21. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He's not only sitting with you. He's telling you the way in which he's going to change the world and that you will see the Christ as a groom coming for the bride and the kingdom established on the earth. You know, this is a little bit like saying, not only am I with you in the house, but you can hear my feet coming down the hallway. And I will soon arrive in your room and everything will be set right. Can I tell you that my children, when they heard my feet coming towards their door, they got right. If I was sneaky, And they didn't hear it. Sometimes they were surprised by my coming. Because they weren't looking for it. And they weren't acting like children. They were acting like uh, something else. Rebellious. Maybe we need to listen for the Lord's footsteps. And begin to encourage ourselves that he has not left us alone. Jesus is already with us. We should not think that we're waiting for him to show up. But rather he is waiting for us to acknowledge and utilize his presence. Isn't that a fair statement? Waiting for the Lord to show up in my workplace. No, he's waiting for you to show up in your workplace. When faced with a trial of provision, protection, or loss of peace, we often act as if we've been orphaned. We forget that Jesus is not just here with us. He is also inside of us. We forget that he gave us his peace. And we allow our fears to poison our hearts and affect our actions. The wellspring is poisoned, and everything that flows from the wellspring is poisoned. I believe at this point in our ministry, he's calling us to show some confidence. That he's with us, even in moments where we don't see or feel his presence. I think he's calling on us to show confidence He's looking for those who believe He exists in our situation and that He rewards those who are faithfully seeking Him. Do you believe that? That's a definition of faith. Confidence that He is with you. That He exists in your situation, no matter how dismal it looks, and that He will reward you. In fact, He doesn't just reward those who are faithfully seeking Him. The scripture actually makes the declaration that he seeks those who are faithfully seeking him. John 4, uh, verse 23 says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father. He's everywhere. How can he seek it? What's he seeking? I mean, does he have to run from me to Rick? How? What does that mean? He's seeking out through your actions and the expression of your heart, whether you have confidence that he exists in your situation. He's seeking inside of you, whether or not you are worshiping him in spirit and truth. He is searching you to see whether or not you're conscious of his presence and acting like it around you. You know, that's not the only verse that says this in the scripture. It actually comes from Chronicles, Second Chronicles 16, and verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord reigns throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. When your heart is fully committed to him, when you are crying out to him in spirit and truth, he is looking for the chance to bless you. But he was never far from you. That's why Acts 17 says that He wants us to reach out and find him, though he's not far from us. So let me ask, it may be the fastest way to get a parent to run back into the room for a child to throw a tantrum. But after the parent grows up a little bit and gets wise to it, what do you let them do? Cry it out. And why do you let them cry it out? Because you're training them. They should not be training you. I want you to understand that's our relationship with the Lord. We're not training him. He's training us. We don't get to determine how often we feel good about things or how often we have what we call the manifest nature of his presence. He is training us. He's training us to show confidence in the face of adversity and faithfulness over time. He wants his children to be confident of his character. He wants his children to be faithful over time like any good father the Lord is watching his children with a ready supply of power on hand to meet any of his children's needs when you think of the father in Luke 15 with the son that played the prodigal when he was coming back do you remember what the father was doing he was looking for him and while the son was still a long ways off what did the father do he ran to meet him if if there had been a pack of wolves trying to eat the son on his way back, what do you think the father would have done? But you know what the father couldn't do? Didn't do in the story? He didn't go to the son while he was eating with pigs and rejecting the father. Now, in our story, there's no way to get away from the father. But he does not allow you to feel closeness while you're eating with pigs and rejecting his presence. He's not going to allow you to feel close to Him because that would be you training Him. Instead, He says, this is the result of your sin. Now seek Me and do it right. See, that hardness of heart that keeps us from feeling Him is actually supposed to cause us, like a spanking from sin, to yearn for His presence and to not want to do that anymore. And instead, somehow or another, we've shifted it to say it's him. It's him withdrawing from us. No, he's still in the room with you. He's always been in the room with you. It's your actions that make you feel far from him. Isaiah makes the point that you could be in a dry and desert land. And he would still protect you. I want to read you just a bit of it. Isaiah 35. Do not fear. Your God will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will save you. It's like a child who is about to collapse beside himself because of the absence. When the, when Ella walks out of the room and Justin's not there, her little boys are either excited because they get to try to do something she was not going to let them to do. To do. No, I'm speaking poorly. Not let them do or... They just lose it and fall on the ground and flail because mom's walked out of the room. That's normal behavior. Those kids are going to conquer the world. When we do that though, we're indicting our father's character. Doesn't that make sense? Look at verse eight of this passage. In verse 8, he says, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. See, those who walk in that way. That term defined the early community of believers. They were called followers of the way. They were men who were confident God was with them. They were faithful to the word of God because they felt his presence there. They even believed that they were ambassadors of his presence. So much so that when Peter shows up in Cornelius house, the Holy Spirit falls on all of them. Do you walk in a way that shows confidence that God is with you? Faithfulness in this matter is everything. If you are not sure he is with you, then how on earth can you be a witness of his goodness, encouraging others to become children of God through Jesus Christ? If you're not sure he's with you, then how could they ever be sure that he would be with them? You know, I've worked with, lived next to, been a brother to, been in covenant with an electrician for a long time. And he's taught me that electricity is a continuous flow of electrons. You know, but as much as electricity is flowing through that wall right there. You don't plug something into it. It's not very effective, is it? Just as electricity isn't electricity, in a sense, until something's plugged in, the world won't see God until you're plugged in to his moving He's looking for someone who will plug into his very presence. They will do it with confidence. They'll do it faithfully, displaying his work. Not yes he is and then no he's not. Not he's with me today but tomorrow I don't so much feel like it. They're waiting for somebody to be plugged in to his flow. I want to show you a couple of words uh one Hebrew, one Greek. The top one is ruah. A feminine noun means spirit, wind, or breath. In other words, it's movement of air. The word is used to refer to the Spirit of God or the Lord. The word is also describes the breath of a human being or a natural wind that blows. In what case could you ever have ruah with no movement? God is always on the move. You don't have to wait for him to show up and you don't have to wait for him to be moving. By definition, he's on the move. When they chose a Greek word to replace rua in the Newer Testament, they chose pneuma, a current of air. A current of air is not a current if it's sitting still. It has to be moving. Not only is God everywhere you've ever been, He is moving and doing something everywhere you've ever been. We need to stop waiting for Him to show up. He's waiting on us. We need to stop waiting for Him to move. He's actually waiting on us. But it takes confidence that He's there. It takes confidence that He's doing something. It takes a faithful heart that says, even if I don't see it at first, I'm going to keep going until I do. How important is it that we be sons of God? That's everything. I want to talk to you about 2 Samuel 23, 8. Let's go there. If everybody in the church would turn there. These are the names of David's mighty men. Josheb, Bashabeth, a techamite. Josheb means one who sits in the council. He was a chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Josheb was not waiting on God to show up. He knew he was already there. Jehoshab was not waiting on God to move. He knew he was already moving. Josheb showed a confidence and a faithfulness in God that we're still talking about today. Do you sit in the council of God? See, His Spirit is in you. He's given you access to His thoughts. He's put you at the right hand of God. Ephesians says that you're seated with Christ in heavenly realms. Surely, we are to be more eager than Josheb. Notice, he didn't form a committee. He didn't start a prayer chain. He didn't sit down and fast for a month to decide what to do. He's God's Son. He knew what to do. See, we are so timid sometimes. I want to encourage you to move. I want to encourage you to grab hold of confidence in the Lord. As Pastor Piro said on Tuesday, you are able to bear up under the load. You just have to trust him. In verse 9, next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahoite. Eleazar means God is my help. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when he taunted the Philistines, gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Eleazar was not waiting for God to show up. He knew that God was waiting on him to show up. Eleazar wasn't waiting on God to move. He knew that it was the other way around. His God was waiting for him to take action. Eleazar showed confidence and faithfulness that is still inspiring today. He froze to the very sword that is the Word of God. When you feel like your father's walked out of the room, what do you do? Because he's left you his word even when he does not show his presence to you in a way that you can see him. See, if your hand freezes to the sword, maybe then the moniker over your life will be God is my help. See, you don't have to wait to discern God's will. You should know it. You're his son. How about verse 11? Next to him was Shama, son of Agi the Herorite. Shammah means astonishment, fame, desolation. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of beans, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down. And the Lord brought about a great victory. Shama knew his God and his father was present. Shama knew his God and his father was working in his situation. Shama showed confidence and faithfulness that astonishes us today. It causes God's fame to grow and it brought desolation to the enemy. These were mighty men. They were sons of God. And he never did for them what he's done for you. What ought we to be? Skip down to 2 Samuel 23 in verse 18. Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zeruah, was chief of the three. Abishai means the gift of my father. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander even though he was not included among them. Oh my goodness. What happens when you feel like you are a gift from God or you've received gifts from God? We are sons of God. You have the answers for the world. Verse 20. Beniah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kezbeel. Beniah means son of the Lord or built by God. Are you seeing a theme here? who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. See, when you believe that your father has given you his gifts, when you believe that you are his son and that he built you, you know that he's already on the scene. You know that he already has something that he wants to do. Your expectation as his son, you get to participate in his work, and you're looking for the opportunity with confidence. And faithfulness. Saints. What are we missing? It's time for faithfulness and confidence to show up in your situation. Our loving father is already here. He's already moving and he's waiting on us. Confidence is is the ability to persevere when fear causes other men to shrink from their faithfulness to retreat from the battle lines. Confidence and faithfulness is the hallmark of those who sit in God's counsel. It is the proof that their namesake is true when they say, God is my help. Confidence and faithfulness is our witness to the world around us. Complaining won't witness to anyone. In Hebrews 11, I just want to point out in verse 27 about Moses. By faith he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. You know why he didn't fear the king's anger? For the first time in his life, he realized he was a son of God. He was an Israelite. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. See, Moses refused fear because he could see his father was in the room with him. I mean, he couldn't see him, but he could. He saw him who was invisible. Moreover, a fully committed heart, he advanced. As we begin to understand the father and his love for us, We should begin to have a sense of security. And it ought to drive out our fears. Is anybody's fear being challenged in here tonight? Moses refused fear because he could see his father. He couldn't see him, but he could see him by faith. First John 4.18 teaches us to do exactly that. Fear is a confidence stealer. It destroys faithfulness. More often than not, Fear brings a man down. Ask Saul. His yellow belly attitude caused him to lose the kingdom of God. Fear steals confidence. It destroys faithfulness. When you're thinking about that subject, I want to give you three quick times that fear appears in the word. The first three times that it appears in the word. Will that surprise you? If the first three times give you an un desirable picture, then why would we need to read all of the other times? The very first time fear shows up in the Bible, the first time somebody is called being afraid. Genesis 3.10. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I... Fear will cause you to hide from God when you should be running to His presence. Fear will cause you to hide from the people of God when you should be seeking them out. Fear will cause you to disconnect when you need to be connected. Genesis 18 and verse 9. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Do you see that the Lord was right there with Sarah while she thought she was safely behind the tent? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Do you see he took her behavior personally? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. See, fear will not only make you hide from God, it will make you lie to yourself and to others about your behavior. You will claim everything is a miscommunication when in fact it was perfectly communicated, you just don't like the results. Confidence, faithfulness are the marks of the sons of God. Fear causes us to hide and disconnect. It causes us to lie about the reasons why. The third mention, Of somebody being afraid in the Bible. Genesis 19 and 30. Lot and his two daughters left Zor and settled in the mountains. For he was afraid to stay in Zor. Can I tell you what a bad decision that was? It birthed incestuous unfaithfulness. That one fear causes two races of people. That exist to this present day. To be at war with the people of God. Because of that fear. The first three mentions of fear are so clear. Fear causes sin because it's an enemy of faith. It acts like your father is not in the room with you. Fear causes men to hide, to lie, and birth unfaithfulness. 69 times the exact phrase, do not be afraid, is in the word of God. And there are so many more variations of it that they're innumerable. Deuteronomy 129 merges all of the concepts that we're talking about today. And we are right at the end, which means you have to put these things together to figure out what the Lord is saying to you. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord, your God, who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. And in the desert, there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. He tells us not to be afraid because he's with us. He tells us to fight because we're his sons. He expects of us confidence in the face of adversity. He expects from us faithfulness. In this church, must learn both. Our scripture for the evening was Luke 12 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. When that was said in Matthew, it was the seventh of the Father's statements in the Sermon on the Mount. He's bringing His kingdom to earth. We're His children. He is our father. We cannot let insecurity, fear, anxiety, feelings of disconnectedness affect our confidence and faithfulness. And if it affects your confidence, it will affect your faithfulness. And if it affects your faithfulness, it will definitely affect your confidence. There's a reciprocal relationship here. We need to refuse to let fear keep us from doing the kingdom's work. Is there an amen for that? I have two more scriptures for you. And man, my prayer is that you'll consider them. Second Chronicles 32 is Hezekiah under tremendous pressure. In verse 6. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square at the city gates and encouraged them with these words. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. Not a power somewhere else that we call on. A power with us. Hezekiah prevailed over the king of Assyria because he knew God was with him. He held on to his confidence because he knew God was with him. He goes down as an example of faithfulness because God was with him. Is He with you? You know, that doesn't sound much like Hezekiah. Yes. That doesn't sound like people who are ready to take on the enemy. sounds like people who are tired and ready to go home. Is he with you? Yes. See, when you begin to have confidence that he is with you, hell can throw its very best at you and you will still be standing and you won't even back up. Your greatest concern will be that somebody on your left or right might back up and you don't want them to slide. So you're trying with all of your heart and faithfulness to show confidence in the Lord so that the people of God can move forward. We're advancing the gospel all over the world. It's going to take a lot more confidence, a lot more faithfulness. For there is a greater power with us than him. With him is only the arm of the flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah the king of Judah said. I'm here to tell you as a pastor, no more hiding when things didn't go right. I'm here to tell you as a pastor, no more shading the truth to hide your faithlessness. No more birthing unfaithfulness. It's time to stand up as sons of God and take confidence in His presence with us. It's time to show faithfulness and help each other to do it. As a church, we're moving towards faithfulness and confidence because our Father is with us. He is on the move and we are going to win. I've been telling you that we were going to win for many years and it's true that we have brothers that have fallen by the wayside, but do you know what? Some of us are still standing. You ought to take confidence that women and children are still standing. With us, You ought to take confidence that many who have been here from the beginning are showing nothing but signs of growth and improvement. Don't you believe the devil's lies? He is with us. We may have lost a few rounds here and there. But we're a long ways from losing this war. In fact, our foot is on the neck of the enemy. I want to remind you of a message preached previously. It's our last scripture. And it's something that I'm hoping you will leave the room grabbing hold of. First Peter 1, For you have been born again. See, you weren't born his children. That's a worldly lie. You have to be born again to become his children. When you were born, you were born in sin, and you were born a son of the devil. To be born again, you had to be born of heaven, born of God, and he had to become your father. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable. Let that sit on you for a minute. What you were born of is not something that loses confidence or wanes in faithfulness. In fact, it's imperishable, inexhaustible, indestructible. It's eternal. But of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. You remember these seeds? Anybody remember this? These seeds were discovered at Masada in 1965. They had been kept there in a storage since the Roman occupation around the year AD 70. They've been dated by scientists to 35 to 65 AD. They took those seeds, they did genetic studies on them, and they found out that they are a species that originated in Egypt but was brought from Egypt to Israel. When you're looking at something like that and you're looking at your life, you can go, I've never had confidence in this area. I've always been insecure about this. Faithfulness in this area has always been hard. But if you have an imperishable seed, that is the Methuselah tree growing today from those seeds. It's a Judean palm. It's over 9 feet tall in 2015 and it's still standing and we drive by it every time we go to Israel. See, everything in the kingdom gives birth according to its kind. And if you were born of an imperishable seed, if there is even a seed of confidence and faithfulness in you, then something ought to be rising tonight. And what has taken root below ought to bear fruit above. Even as it did in Hezekiah's day, we ought to be jumping to our feet ready to take on the world. We cannot sit back hiding in fear. We cannot sit back being untruthful about why it is we feel the way we do. We cannot sit back birthing unfaithfulness. It is time for us to be as we really are, confident, faithful sons of God. Would you stand to your feet? Some of you have loved the Lord a long time. do I don't know exactly what that's like. Somehow or another, things just kind of creep up on you. A little bit of the newness has worn off. It's easy to do things because you've just always done them. It's easy to go through the motions. It's easy to wait just for the right emotional moment at the right sermon. But the truth is, He's never far from you. The truth is, you're always His Son. And if you grab hold of that eternal seed, the fruit that it begins to bear on you is there's no such thing as a bad day. There's no such thing as a downcast spirit. Because when are the sons of God in the heavens? When are the sons of God in the millennial reign? When are the sons of God ever Going to look like that. And we are in the kingdom now. And we are bringing the kingdom to the rest of mankind. Church, we're going to close this service. And my challenge to you is very simple. Pick up your confidence. Step up your faithfulness. Let us put away things that were born out of fear. And let us put behind us the stumblings of this last month. And move on to the great things that our church is called to do. Father, we give you this time now. We say that there is no one who is worthy of our love and devotion like you. There is no one, mighty God, that is worthy of all of our passion and all of our desire. May your confidence be born in us. May your faithfulness take root in us. Almighty God, stir your people in this place.